Hey, good morning, Grace Point. It's Pastor Garrett here. I'm glad that you could tune in this morning, and I'm just glad we get to bring you church at home. If you're unfamiliar with me, um, I, I'm a pastor down at Cross Connection Church in Escondido and been able to teach here up here quite a few times, and I uh, for those of you that can't make it this morning due to the rain or whatever else it is, I'm glad that we get to bring you a, a message at home. It's going to be a good one. Um, I know the Lord is going to be speaking to us. So go ahead and pull out your Bibles, open up your phones, um, whatever you need to do. And we're going to be turning to First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. I'll give you just a moment to, to flip there, First Thessalonians 4, looking at verses 9 and 10 together. And while you're turning there, um, I just want to encourage you, uh, this is uh, going to be a live service, of course, um, on YouTube, wherever you're watching it. And this is something I want to encourage you to share with others. We're going to be talking about love and hope today. Um, so I know people need some encouragement. Uh, we're, our country's been going through a rough patch. So um, definitely consider sharing this um, in faith that the Lord will be speaking to two people that you share it with. So First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, let's start there. It says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is why you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Let's pray. Father God, we do lift up this time to you. Lord, I lift up everybody that's watching, whether we're across the screen, Lord, um, so whether people are sitting in their couch, in their bed, um, comfortable at home, Lord, and safe from the rain. I do pray, Lord, that your spirit be poured out on all of us. Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would soften our hearts, open our ears to hear what your Spirit has for the church. And Lord, we pray as the Hebrews 12.1 says, let us, Lord, today lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Lord, I thank you that you are right now high and lifted up. You are highly exalted at the right hand of the Father. Lord, you hold the nations in your hand and indeed all of history is determined within your providence, Lord. And I ask that you would strengthen your church, Grace Point, Lord, every person, every soul that's watching, Lord, that you would have your, cause your face to shine upon them. And Lord, would you cause our eyes to be lifted up once again to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you speak to us and teach us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a night that the disciples were going to remember. It's a night that, uh, would have caused stress, anxiety. It would have just been one of those weird nights that was just etched into your mind. The night when the disciples, all 12 of them, and Jesus entered into an upper room together and all passing this little water pail with a, probably a rag next to it that was picked up by Jesus. And he began to go around and wash the disciples' feet and then lead them in this last supper together. Um, they didn't know it was the last, but looking back on it, they would have it would have just been one of those memories that was etched into their mind forever, a night that they would have, one of their very own would betray Jesus, um, a night that one of them would betray him three times. And he said this to them in that particular moment. And that in that teaching that night, he said this in, in the book of John chapter 13, it says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, Jesus gave this great new command to his disciples in this very memorable night. And I imagine that was just one of those memories that was etched into their minds forever because of just the, all the circumstances surrounding that, the death of their own, their savior of Jesus, the man who they had followed just diligently every single day and night, spending every waking hour of time with him. 
And to see him crucified, lifted up on the cross, um, that was the new command he gave to them right before this all happened. And it was a command to love. And it was what kind of love? He said, well, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. You see, it was, it is the atoning death of Christ um, that we as believers can now know true love. It's because of the sacrifice that Jesus had on the cross of Calvary 2020-something years ago um, that we can know true love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That didn't mean that we made ourselves good. That means that while we were in sin, while we were in open rebellion against the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the Son of God that he sent, while we were in open rebellion to him, while people were spitting in his face, he died for them. He died for those that were still sinners. And even yet today, we still are sinners, of course, in need of a Savior. So if you're listening today and you're looking for hope, if you're looking for love, if you're, if you're missing something in your soul right now, I guarantee you that Christ is the answer. Um, we're going to be looking at how we can know love um, in, in particular this morning. So I believe that we are at a, a turning point in our nation, a, a a very important time. It's going to be a time that's written down in history books. Uh, it's going to be a time that everybody alive today is going to remember uh, for years to come. In fact, uh, it's going to probably be the most memorable election of at least my lifetime, of many of yours as well. And you see, I, I do, I do think that this our nation right now is hurting. I think that we can point and say well, our our nation needs this president or that president, or we need the, you know this this policy or that policy, but we need God. Ultimately, church, we have the key that unlocks freedom for everybody right here. It unlocks the answers that we're all asking. And I want to encourage you this morning, in these trying times, don't stop praying. Don't stop. In fact, the the scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. And don't lose hope. You see, I I have an optimistic view of the future, um, no matter what happened. Christ says he's going to return one day. I'm thrilled about that. Um, I know today we're 2,020 years closer to that return than the disciples were in that upper room. And yet, we have a job to do. We have people to love. And until our hearts are changed, until we change the hearts of those around the nation, we can't really love each other. So don't stop praying and don't lose hope. This election may have been a weight on our nation, but don't let despondency get the best of you. That's just my encouragement for you this morning. Um, It will be a stumbling block to your Christian pilgrimage. It will be a stumbling block to your progress with Christ. Failure, and if you even look at it, the failure of Israel, the nation of Israel, to enter the promised land, it started with just minor grumblings, minor murmurings, minor complaints. The people of Israel were like, I'm not really, what about going back to this, you know, this land of Egypt where we had everything provided for us? Yeah, we were slaves, but, but we had that. It was minor grumblings and mumblings as these people were led into the wilderness, and and they looked, but they were looking back, thinking, "Man, maybe we're missing something." It was these minor grumblings that kept them from entering the promised land. Don't give a place in your hearts today to doubt God or His love and His faithfulness to us in everything. Do not give place in your heart to doubt. The devil has, I've heard, two tricks up his sleeve. One of them is to get us discouraged as a church. And the second one is to make us doubt. Let's look at the first one together really quick as I digress a little bit. To get us discouraged. When we are discouraged um, for a time, we can be basically of no service to others because we're essentially defeated when we're discouraged. Okay? 
So that's that's the problem, is the devil knows that he can get us out of the game if, if he's discouraged us. The second one is to make us doubt. Now, maybe this, this, this time that we're living in 2020 has made you doubt a lot of things. A lot of your plans didn't happen the way that you wanted them to. A lot of your hopes um, were crushed, you know. This was a tough year for people. I did quite a few weddings. A lot of a lot of people. It's the biggest one of the biggest days of their life, and their um, you know in their mind. I think the biggest day of our life is when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. But for these couples, a lot of this them is this is the biggest day that they can look forward to, and and yet they've had to push back or redo plans because of the pandemic that we're in, and um, it's been discouraging to them. So I've been doing a lot of work this year of encouraging people and trying to help people not doubt because God is in control. And I'm not just saying that, I really do believe it. So doubt, doubt breaks the faith link which we are bound to the Father. What do we mean that by that? As soon as we doubt, we become like a, a ship with a broken anchor line that can just get tossed to and fro by the sea. And whichever way the wind blows, we, we go with it. That's what doubt does to us. It, it untethers us from Christ, our faith link between us and Christ. It untethers that. So don't be discouraged. And don't doubt. Instead, I want to encourage you to be glad. Christ is still on the throne. He's still all-powerful. He's still at work within you and me, and he's going to teach us how to love each other today. And Ephesians 5 even says to give thanks always. That's a steep command. Give thanks always. No matter if you're discouraged, no matter if things don't look good in our nation, no matter what you're seeing, no matter what you're feeling especially, give thanks always. Smile, give thanks. God is still on the throne, and he still has a plan that he hasn't yet fulfilled in you and me. And that plan is to reach people with this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I think this message in particular is so vastly important for us today, this message of love that Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church, telling them to love more and more. You see, the more chaotic and divided things become in our culture, and I do believe, I'm not trying to be prophetic, I do believe in the next four years, we're going to be fighting battles in our culture. It's, there's going to be a division that's not just going to end um, with the announcement of a president. And the more chaotic, the more divided things get in our culture, the more important it is that the Christian community, meaning the church, the body of Christ, takes upon themselves more of a corporate support for one another. We must love one another. This is so incredibly important today. We must love one another. What is love? Well, our nation has definitely uh, skewed what love is. Um, we have certain parties that say they're the tall party of love and tolerance. Okay, what does that mean? Do they even know what love is? I would say, aside from Christ, our conceptions of love, our, our definition of love is completely false. It can be whatever the heck we want it to be. Christ defines love for us very clearly. And my goodness, Love is written about all over the New Testament. I want to encourage you to go find that. And I'll even give you a few after I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for you. So what is love? Let's check that out. What is what is love? 1 Corinthians 13. I usually read this when I'm doing a wedding. Um, it says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Or in some of your translations, it might say love never fails. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is written about all around, all around the New Testament. Gosh, God wanted us to learn so many lessons about love. And he, it, it, the perfect example of it is in Jesus Christ. 
But then all throughout the New Testament, we have these just great examples of what does it mean to love each other? What does it mean to be Christ-like? What does it mean that we're being sanctified? So a couple other verses you can look for, Ephesians 4 and 5, and of course, 1 Corinthians 13. I just encourage you, this week, today, the rest of your day, it's a rainy day, this is a perfect time, I want you to open your Bibles, open your scriptures, and just thumb through the pages of the New Testament. Find these scriptures of love. I want you to meditate on these scriptures of love. And I think you're going to be so encouraged. You're going to be so strengthened in your faith. You're going to be so blessed just by that. Turn off the news. Turn off the radio. Turn off any, any of that outside noise that's coming in and distracting us from the ultimate truth that is found in Christ. And let's together look into these things that, that Christ has. This is the living word of God. I trust he's going to speak to you powerfully through just your your faithful dedication to the scriptures. May it be written on your hearts and on your mind. You know, to meditate on these things day and night, that means that we have to be thumbing through them. Today is a perfect time to do that. And then just ask the Lord as you're thumbing through these, Lord, how do you want to speak to me personally through these words? And my goodness, let me just tell you, you could open to a completely random page in the New Testament and something's going to come out and it's going to speak directly to you. God does that because he loves you. And he wants you to become more and more like him. He's in this process with us, ultimately shaping our character, molding our character to match the calling he's given us because he loves us so much that he's planned you and me, individually unique people. He loves us so much. The love of the Father, we, we call it God, God the Father loves us. He loves us so uniquely that he's given us each an individual plan and purpose in our lives. And he's given us unique situations and circumstances surrounding our lives that we have unique possibilities. So, gosh, I mean, I've been thinking about this more and more um, because I just became a dad here on September 28th. Our, our daughter, Rose, um, she'll probably be with us here at church. Um, and so she's about uh, just over a month old now. And as being a, a new dad, um, I have a completely new and fresh understanding of what the father's love for us, for his children, is what that looks like. Because I can hold my little infant baby and she can do nothing except look around kind of aimlessly seemingly and with her beautiful blue eyes and eat and poop and diaper changes and sleep and and then repeat right now. And yet no matter what she does, no matter how tired I am at 3 a.m. in the morning or how fussy she is, I can't help but just love my daughter. Um, it's this the father's love for us. And that's the kind of love actually that God the Father has for his children. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, our Father in heaven loves us so much that he's not just planned great things for us here in this world, that, that he's going to also be disciplining us and correcting us and, and shaping us and molding us in this life to become better people for his purposes. Um, and we're going to enjoy every second of that. But he's also planning an eternity for us with him. That's, that's the greatest hope that I could possibly ever have. That makes me glad. That makes me so stoked. So definitely spend some time meditating about love and, and the, throughout the New Testament. But let's get back to 1 Thessalonians 4, back to our text. So earlier in this chapter, as you guys probably remember from the last couple of weeks um, uh, of teaching, us going through this, Paul's been writing um, about living the life that pleases God. That's what he's teaching the, the Thessalonian church. He's writing to them about Hey, this is how you live a life that is now pleasing to God. This is incredibly important for us uh, to, to think about and to study today. How do we live a life that is pleasing to God? Because we're all in this process, uh, or pilgrimage, some people call it, of 
becoming more like Christ, more Christ-like. So what is that? He calls it sanctification. Sanctification is essentially us becoming holy like God is holy. And it's a process. It doesn't mean it's going to be instant. I wish it was. I wish that it could just be as simple as, as, as throwing something in the microwave and then being able to enjoy it right then and there. No, it's a process. And anytime that there's a process, anytime we're stretched, anytime that we're, we're tried, or we go through trials and uh, temptations and all these things that ultimately strengthen our character, making us more Christ-like, more sanctified, and the Holy Spirit is in us confirming, hey, this is right, this is wrong. Um, hey, maybe you shouldn't be spending so much time on your phone. Well, I call these phones that we have now. We basically have a supercomputer in our pocket. It's an adult pacifier. Yeah, I'm a dad. I can say that. It's an adult pacifier. And, uh, and honestly, we need to be turning these things off and we need to be turning back to the scriptures. And we need to be fed by the scriptures, not by the mainstream media, not by Twitter and social media and all these other things. That's not reality, church. That's not reality. And it's not going to make you feel any better when you're done with it. You see, I even re- remember reading a statistic that was saying that 92% of the content on Twitter is posted by 10% of the users on Twitter. Get that. So you're in a bubble, a very, very small bubble when you're reading stuff on, on, on there, social media. So turn it off and let's open up the scripture. Let's open up the, uh, up the text today and let's be blessed by the word of God. So becoming like Christ, our sanctification, becoming holy, becoming transformed from the inside out. Well, this is the transition that Paul uses now to teach about love. He says, so here's how to lead a godly life and and you have to love. Love is, that, in fact, so incredibly important. And to the Thessalonian church, this was a pretty basic principle. I don't think it was very confusing to them to understand this. I don't think it was a surprise to them because Paul actually commends them for their love. We'll see. But you see, this should have been a basic principle, obvious to believers that we're supposed to love because we now understand the love that Christ had for us that while we were at sinners, he placed himself on the cross of Calvary and he sacrificed himself so that way we could now be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's good news. That no matter what we've done, it can all be washed away because the precious blood of Jesus Christ was sacrificed on our behalf that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for our sins. So, the Thessalonians, uh, you know, were in fact taught by God to love. I want to look at that though. So it talks about that. The that he's, Paul says, writing to the, the Thessalonian church, he says, "You yourselves were taught by who? Taught by God." He didn't say you were taught by me how to love. He said you were taught by God how to love. And I want to just zoom in on that. What does that mean to be taught by God to love? So, as we're in this process of sanctification. God does something in us where he opens our eyes to see things that were uh, were unseen before we were saved. And he does this in a, in a miraculous way. And the best way I can describe it to you is like a sundial. Now, this was uh, basically an instrument to use to tell time, and it would tell time by casting a shadow over some marks on the ground, usually, depending on where the sun was, and it would tell you what time it was. This was actually likely what was used to tell time back in the first century when Paul was writing these things, a sundial. Good way to tell time. What time of day is it? Well, they could look at wherever these sundials were set up and they could say, okay, the shadow is over three o'clock. It's 3 p.m. right now. You see, but what happens to a sundial on a cloudy day or a rainy day like today? Well, when it's rainy and cloudy, the sundial doesn't look, it's useless essentially. You can't understand a sundial. It just will look like gibberish to anybody watching it on a, on a cloudy day. And what it needs is it needs sunlight 
to shine through the clouds, to cast a shadow, to tell us and give us direction. This is very similar to how Christ illuminates the scripture in our lives. Is The Holy Spirit allows us, it, it shines this light through the cloudy day and allows us to make sense of what the word of God is saying. And it gives us direction, it gives us understanding that we wouldn't have on a cloudy day. So it kind of lifts that fog and in our in a sense to give us increased understanding of what God is teaching us. That's how this word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces us deeply. That's exactly what's happening. So today I want to increase our understanding of what love is, particularly looking uh, through several passages. First, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 to 40. So go ahead, if you have your Bibles with you, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 to 40. Jesus is teaching, um, he teaches us what he considers the great commandment. So, being questioned by the Pharisees, they came to him trying to test him like they were usually, and I'm going to paraphrase this for the sake of time. Being questioned by the Pharisees, um, which he was pretty regularly questioned, and they were trying to trap him in his words. They, they, one of these lawyers of the Pharisees came and asked Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, to love your God. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor like yourself or as yourself. But you see then in the same story is recorded as for us in the gospel of Luke chapter 10. It gives us the rest of the story um, and it illuminates even more for us. Luke chapter 10 says this, that the lawyer is seeking to justify himself before Christ. says, okay, so the lawyer, you know, okay, so who is my neighbor, Jesus I, you know, and I bet after he asked the question, he wished he hadn't because Jesus' answer is so incredible. Jesus tells them a parable about a man traveling to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to the town of Jericho, and he fell amongst the robbers while he was on the path. These robbers stripped him down, they beat him, they left him for dead. Sitting and dying on the side of the road, the Bible said, like, my Bible, I think, in the ESV says half dead, and I'm like, well, how are you half dead and or half alive? I don't know. It's interesting, though, but basically he was not in a good shape. This guy was not in good shape. So they stripped him down, beat him, left him half dead. First, the first guy that passes him by is a priest. Passes him by on the other side of the road, doesn't stop, sees him, doesn't, doesn't want to touch it. So first the priest passes by, okay, that doesn't look good, uh, especially in the first century Jew, Jewish context, the priests and the Levites, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were supposed to be the people that were, in a sense, uh, socially greater than everybody else, especially spiritually. They were, supposed, they were looked up to, in a sense, and they thought of themselves like that, too. They were very, very much proud of who they were. Yet, the priest didn't stop. Second, a Levite passes him by on the road. And the Levites, if you remember uh, from, from the Old Testament, the Levites were the tribe that were essentially those that were the keepers of the law. They were the carriers of the, the covenant promises of God, uh, of the tabernacle. Uh, the Levites were those people that knew the law. He passes them by. Okay, so now a priest and a Levite pass them by. Third, a Samaritan comes along. And this man sees him and has compassion, Jesus says. A Samaritan. He bound his wounds, put him up in his own donkey, and takes him to a, a local inn that's nearby to take care of him for that whole day. The next day, that means this man spent a whole day taking care of this man that had just been beat to a pulp. Spent a whole day taking care of him in this inn. The next day, he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which would have been essentially two days' wages, and tells the innkeeper, hey, use this, take care of this man, and get him back up to health. 
if you use any more money to take care of him, the next time I'm passing by here on the road, I will pay you back. Jesus says, and he looks at this lawyer and asks him, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who was robbed? The lawyer couldn't even say the name Samaritan. But what he does say is the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Why couldn't this man say the name Samaritan? Well, in the first century context, the Jews and Samaritans could not be more polar opposite in everything. Politically, socially, the Samaritans to the Jews were like dogs. They were like the the worst people you could possibly think of. I, I don't even want to give us a modern day analogy. I don't know what the proper one would be. But essentially, they were the the lowest of the low, the Samaritans. You don't touch Samaritans. You don't even go through Samaria if you're traveling somewhere because you don't even want to touch their land. You don't want to be have any part. To any they, you know, in, a, in a sense, the Jews were very racist against the Samaritans. And that's just to put it lightly. And so when Jesus uses the fact that a Samaritan, uh, considered an enemy by the Jews, essentially, a Samaritan had mercy. The Samaritan is the example that they're supposed to look up to in this in this parable. Jesus reveals now that the spirit of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, isn't just love your neighbor like yourself. It's even love your enemy as yourself. You see, for the Samaritan to to pass by this Jew and then not only to pick him up off the road to clean him up, but then to take him to an inn, take care of him all day, and then give the innkeeper some money to take care of him for the next couple days. You see, that wasn't heard of. See, the Samaritans also didn't really like the Jews because the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. It went back and forth. So, Jesus is saying the spirit of the law, the, uh, how to interpret the law, to love your neighbor as yourself, is really to not just love your neighbor as yourself, but love your, even your enemies as yourself. That's pretty powerful. If, if the whole church was like that, that we had that mentality, that eternal mindset, that we could love everybody, even our enemies, and we could live our lives out that way, that when we see somebody on the side of the road, we just pick them up, and we, and we, no matter who the heck they are, we pick them up, we take care of them, and we leave them better than they started. You see, Paul commended the Thessalonians for their love that was well known throughout the whole entire land of Macedonia. That's a pretty, a, a pretty big statement by Paul. Paul's saying, look, you guys are, he commends them, you guys are doing really well, the Thessalonian church. That'd be like him saying, Grace Point, you're doing so well. If I go anywhere in Valley Center, everybody can tell of the love that you have for people in Valley Center. Or even beyond that, I would say, that'd be like in, in San Diego. Everybody knows of the love that Grace Point Church has for those in, in North County, San Diego. Everybody knows. That's basically what Paul's writing. He's saying, we hear about it on the streets. We hear about it when we're out there. And I commend you for that. You were taught that love by God, not by me. You see, but then he's encouraging them to do this more and more, to increase more and more in their love. They had not yet, you know, you see, the, the point he's making here is, there are none on this side of heaven None of you watching this right now across the screen from me, sitting on your couch, sitting on your bed, sitting in your living room, none of you love perfectly, myself included. None of us love perfectly. And that's what Paul's saying. Love more and more. This is, this is something that's going to be a journey that we have to love throughout our lives, love people as ourselves, love our neighbors and love even our enemies as ourselves. You see, why, why is that? I think... I think the, the answer to that it ultimately boils down to our view of who we are as people, humankind, mankind. What makes us special from the rest of creation? The fact that God made us in his image. 
You see, that's what gives people a value, no matter whether they're believers or not, gives them value that cannot be taken away from them. It cannot be diminished. No matter what party they affiliate with, no matter if they're rioting and protesting out in the streets, God made those people in his image. He cared about them. We'll, we'll get back to that in a second. But there's none of us on the side of heaven who love perfectly, so thus we need to work at it. Even though the Thessalonians had done such a great job in all of Macedonia showing their love, caring for people, loving them, Paul says increase more and more of that. The idea here is a love that perseveres until the end. Now, might I suggest that if the church, the body of Christ, can persevere and love to the end, what is the end? Well, it could just be to the end of your lifetime or it could be till Christ returns. Ultimately, Christ, when Christ returns, people that believe in him, we're going to be with him forever. It's going to be great. But until that point, he's saying, I want you to have a love that perseveres. I want you to have a love that perseveres. I believe that the more we love Grace Point, the more we love people, not only people in our church, especially people in our church, the brothers, the, the body of Christ. We need to love the body of Christ. I'll get into that in a minute. But the more we love each other, the more people see that love that we have for each other, and the more that people see our love, even for those that would be considered our enemies, those who speak poorly of us, the more that people see that, the more of an impact we are going to have in our generation. And I do believe that God is going to use this generation to bring about revival, to bring about people coming to him. People are hungry for it right now. They, they need an answer. They need an answer to this, the questions that they're asking. We must love. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law to bring together two groups of people, the Samaritans, the Jews, or really ultimately the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles would be all these other people. It could include Samaritans. Um, but the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus says, no, they're no longer two, but now one. You're my people. You see, when we become part of the body of Christ, we're no longer Republicans or Democrats. We are Christ followers. We are Christians. That means little Christ. That means we are seeking to follow after Christ to learn his ways, to practice his ways, to be loving like him, especially loving those in the body. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus is the only path to eternal life. When we repent and believe, we follow him, we obey his commands. When we love others as ourselves, it is it's a required element of that fact that we are part of the body. So there shouldn't be division in our body. And Paul's trying to make this very clear, the brotherly love you have for each other, that's the kind of love that we need to have for those members of Grace Point Church, every single one of us here. Members of the church, the body of Christ at large, in our nation and in the world. We need to love them. We need to be praying for them. See, it would be kind of like my, my hand saying, I hate my face, or something along the lines of that. It just doesn't work. Like, the body cannot work like that. Or it'd be like my mouth saying, it's better than my feet, but then I wouldn't get anywhere because I wouldn't be able to walk. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Let's, let's just start there again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. There should not be division in the body. It makes it very clear right here. Let's read that together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says, for just as... The body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if an ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it less any, any less part of the body either. If the whole body were an eye, <laughs> that's just kind of a funny picture to think of. If the whole body were an eye, 
um, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose, for, or if all were the same single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need to you, nor can the, the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Let me say that again. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have all the same care for one another. If one member suffer, all of them suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's the kind of idea with the, the church. The, uh, as Christ said when he, in, in Matthew chapter 16, when he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That word church is ecclesia. It was the first time Jesus didn't use a, a sec, or he didn't use a, a what, should, what should I say, a um, religious term. He didn't say synagogue. He did not say um, temple. He didn't. He wasn't referring to a building. He said ecclesia, which was a, a secular term, meaning a gathering of people for the betterment of the community. A people. It was, it's actually this idea of citizens being called out from their house to meet, to talk about political events, to talk about things that are going on, and what decisions we can make to better our community, to better the people in our community. What is going to be the best good for all? That's the idea of the ecclesia, the church, the body of Christ. We are supposed to be the same within the body. You see, our country can be divided, but the church absolutely cannot be. So, but what about those that have different political views than I do, Pastor? What do you, what do you do? How, what's your response to them? You know, some of you may be so wrapped up with, how can this person claim to be a Christian and believe this or that or vote for this candidate or that candidate? Okay, let's calm down here for a second, and let me ask you a question. How many of you can list the names of the 12 men that Jesus personally handpicked to follow him, his 12 disciples? Okay. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. I want to read this list off to you really quick. The names of the 12 apostles or disciples were these. First, Simon, who was called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. I want to look specifically at two of these men. First, there is Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the zealot. The scripture actually very clearly tells us that Simon was a zealot. And then two, Matthew the tax collector. Okay, so these men were chosen by Christ, and then they followed him day and night, every waking hour of every day together. They followed him, they listened to his teaching, they talked, they did everything, they lived together for three and a half or so years. All 12 of these people, one of them, Simon, was a zealot. Who can tell me what a zealot was? You see, the zealots were a group, technically an unofficial political party or movement, that was not happy with the Roman government. They were willing to do anything, in fact, to subvert Rome's authority. They were radical, violent rebels, fed up with the Romans, and bent upon overthrowing the government. They saw violence as being justified 
uh, as a justifiable means to an end, if you will. So their riots were justified. Their tearing down statues were just, I'm just kidding on that part. Um, maybe they tore down statues. I, I don't know. I didn't read anything about that. Um, but, <laughs> but they saw all of that as justified to advance their political agenda. They were not friendly at all with the Romans. They hated the Romans. They thought that they were the oppressors. Okay, so that's the zealots. Now let's look at Matthew. How many of you are familiar with how tax collectors were viewed in the time in the, of the, in the first century? Well, I would say not a whole lot differently 2,000 years later. Um, I mean, some of you may, like me, have gotten your Dan McAllister letter in the mail saying that you owe your property taxes, and it always comes just in time for Christmas, right? Um, Matthew was a tax collector. How, so tax collectors were despised, I would say, by the Jews at large. Why? Because they were viewed as Rome sympathizers. They were also, a lot of them, very corrupt. You see that they were in charge as Jews to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. When they collected these taxes, sometimes they would collect just a little extra here and there, or maybe a lot extra, and just to line their own pockets. So there was corruption amongst the tax collectors, that's for sure. Um, the tax collectors weren't very liked. Yet Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and love, chose Simon a zealot, and Matthew a tax collector, two individuals that could not be more polar opposite politically, and they were able to follow him together. You see, so I say, yeah, maybe the couple, the first couple fireside chats might have been pretty interesting. <laughs> hey, what did you do? What, you know, what was your profession? What, you know, what do you believe? Oh, I, I was a tax collector. Ooh, that, you know, and yet, my point being is that Jesus chose each of them. He loved each of them. Were they the same after Jesus chose them, after spending three and a half years with them and the rest of them? No. They were radically transformed by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to be as well. You see, Jesus chose them. Both these men became brothers and co-workers for the gospel. That's ultimately what we are called to be here today. It's unfortunate that today so many believers seem a little bit more, you know, committed to a political party than to Christ. I'm just going to say it. In Matthew chapter 16, 18, again, I'm going to go back to this. When Jesus created the church and he said, flesh and blood to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal to you that I'm the Christ. When That's what Peter asked him, or answered, I should say. When Jesus was asking his disciples and Peter responds on behalf of them, he asked them, who do you say that I am? They say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. That was the first time in the, in the Gospel of Matthew that Christ was affirmed to be the Christ, that Jesus was affirmed, and, and we knew his identity. All of the Gospel was leading up to that point, and now we know he is the Christ. He is the Savior. He's the Son of God. And what did Jesus say? He said, well, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. He taught that to you, actually, Peter. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I just want you to remember this. What does that mean for the church? Jesus said that he would build his own community, right? And nothing, not even death itself, specifically in the first century, he's referring to death by martyrdom by the time this gospel was written. So the, the, the empire, everything was pretty radical at the time. People were being killed. He's saying nothing, not even death itself, will prevail against the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of, of, the, of the saints, the love that we have for each other. The church will always stand. Let me tell you right now, 
It hasn't changed for 2020 years since that point. And it's not going to change in the next four years. The church will always stand. And we need to stand with the church. In the church, we are the church. You see, the church isn't just a four-walled building. It is the body of Christ. It is you and me because we have the Spirit of God living within us. You see, at this point in, the, in, in history for the Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church had become, had become consumed in one particular area of Christian doctrine, namely the return of Christ, their eschatology. When Christ was going to return, they thought it was imminent. Christ is going to return now. Why? Because they had these crazy Roman emperors, Caesar, Nero, all these other ones, that were literally burning Christians on stakes, the light courtyards. It wasn't a pretty scene. In fact, it was gruesome. It was, it was absolutely horrendous. And yet, what is Paul writing to this church that's going, that's seeing this happen around them? He's saying, you need to love each other. You need to take care of each other. You also need to love your enemies. You need to take care of everybody. You need to love people like Christ loves us, that while we were yet sinners, when we were in rebellion against God, he died for us. Do we have that kind of love for others? But you see, what happened, though, is that this church, the Thessalonian church, had become so consumed with this doctrine that Christ was going to return imminently because of what they saw going around politically, that Christ was going to return imminently, that they began to be lazy. They began to be busybodies and not work hard anymore. So I can tell you that we are much closer to the return of Christ today. Nobody knows the day or the hour. Until that point, let us not be consumed with one area of Christian doctrine but love is essential. Love will set us aside that, that the world will know us, the body of Christ, by our love. How important is love? We need to love each other, promote unity in the body of Christ, love our neighbors, love our enemies. It's a radical calling to follow Jesus. People are hungry for that hope right now. The gospel of Jesus Christ, they're hungry for it. And what would happen if we stopped as the church compartmentalizing our faith, saying, I'm going to be a Christian on Sunday morning, but then when I go to the store, I'm not going to really, you know, encourage anybody with a, a scripture. I'm not going to pray for somebody out in the store. I'm not going to, you know, there's, these opportunities come up. We cannot compartmentalize our faith. We are called to be Christians publicly. The world needs to see that we celebrate Christ, that we love Christ, that we love others. Do not compartmentalize your faith, church. We may have changing politics. We may have changing presidents. But as Christians, we will never have a changing God. We will never have a changing directive or the work that we do for the kingdom of God will never change in our lifetime. The commission that Christ set us on will never change. That's good news. That means that we can only work at it. We can only work to get better at it because until Christ returns, until the Father determines that it is the time for him to return, we have a job to do. Let us get busy loving others like Christ loved us. We have work for the kingdom of God here on this earth and it will never change. And I'll end with this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Jesus had asked, or was asked by another, um, another Pharisee and a group of them, actually another test. He was asked if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus asked for a denarii. And the denarii, like I said, it was an acceptable form of paying taxes, essentially, at that time. Somebody flips him a denarii, it's basically like a little quarter, and he looks at it, there's a face on it, it would have been the Caesar at the time, and had this uh, had an inscription on it. And Jesus 
thumbs it around a little bit, and then he looks at them and he says, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And they said, well, Caesar's. He said, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. You see, I just wish that they had asked the follow-up question, and, and perhaps it happened, but I think it was implied, well, Jesus, what belongs to God? And then he would have looked at them right in the eye and said, whose image is on you? We're all made in the image of God. Are we giving to God what is God's? You see, transformation, change, living a godly life, sanctification, it starts with you. Until your heart is transformed by the love of Christ, by the Holy Spirit being inside of you. Until you ask the Holy Spirit to be part of your life, to direct your life, that you would be obedient to the commands of the scriptures, be obedient to how God wants us to live, be obedient in love towards others. You see, it starts with us. Until our hearts are changed, how can we expect to see the world change? Whose image is on you? Are you giving to God the things that are God? See, if you don't love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your soul, and your strength, the first great commandment, then we're going to be useless. We first must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. That means we need to love him intellectually as well. We need to like actually study this so we can have answers for people. All of our strength, all of our mind. I think a lot of us are so divided right now in what we're giving our, our time, our assets, our talents to. What are you giving your energy to right now? Because if it's watching the news, you're not going to love the God. You're, you're not going to love the Lord your God more. You're going to be more frustrated with yourself and with the world. But when you turn your eyes to Christ, you will be strengthened. You'll find new hope. You'll find new joy. The Lord will renew the joy of your salvation. That's good news. And I'm going to end with that. Let's pray. Father God, you are so, so good. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you've done in our lives, that you sent your only, only begotten son to die, that we might live. Lord, that we might live lives where we can have fellowship and communion with the Father in heaven, that we can be reconciled to him. Lord, but even more than that, that we can now learn to love the world, learn to love our neighbors as ourselves by the love that Christ showed us on the cross by the love that Christ showed us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Father, help us to become more like you. Would you continue the process of sanctifying each one of us? Lord, there's, there's people right now listening that have hurts, they have pains, they have things that they need to, to get off their chest. They need to, maybe even some things they need to repent of right now, Lord. Father, would you do a mighty work? Lord, you are a God that forgives us. You're compassionate, you're merciful. And there's nothing too great that you can't change and transform in our lives. So Father, we do pray for our nation. And I pray that we'd be a light in a dark world, Lord. That we would be such a bright, shining light that people would know us by our love. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Great to be back with you, uh, Grace Point. Uh, Can't wait till next time. Have a great week in Christ. God bless.